Y'all turn with me to Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 16. Mark 14, 12 through 26, that is, 12 through 26. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the name of James Stockdale, Admiral James Stockdale. Um, if you've heard of him, perhaps you've heard of him because in 1992, when Ross Perot ran for president, uh, probably the most successful uh, independent candidate for president in our history so far, he, he tapped Admiral Stockdale to be his running mate. And Stockdale did really poorly in the vice presidential debates, and it wasn't his fault. The, the team did not prepare him. Um, but afterwards, he, he came under a lot of ridicule for his performance there, and I think that really, uh, it, that's what a lot of people remember about him, unfortunately. And I say unfortunately because James Stockdale is a true American hero. He was shot down over North Vietnam on a bombing mission in 1965. He was captured, beaten severely by his captors, um, and then was locked up in the Hanoi Hilton, which is what we'd called the, their most infamous prison in that part of the world. Um, he spent eight years there. He was the highest ranked uh, military officer of our country who was a, a prisoner of war in that conflict. Um, he became quickly known as the leader of the resistance movement among the soldiers in that prison. And that meant that because of his leadership, because of his encouragement and his just basically cracking the whip on his men, uh, the men in that prison did not submit to torture. They did not cooperate with their captors. They were not, they did not allow themselves to be used for propaganda purposes. Stockdale himself at one point heard that they were going to put him on TV so they could show film nationwide or worldwide that, look, we treat our prisoners well. So in order to prevent them from using him in that way, he took a chair and beat his own face so that he was unrecognized and they had to scrap their plans. This is a courageous, courageous man. Um, because of that, he was uh, denied medical treatment, even though he was severely injured when he was first captured. Um, he was locked in solitary confinement for over half of those eight years, so four years plus. He was locked by himself. Um, he was... Uh, he was severely mistreated. When he got home, he was permanently disabled. He received the Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest honor our country can bestow, went to Admiral Stockdale. And some years ago, a few years before he passed away, early this century, um, he was interviewed by the author Jim Collins. And Collins asked him, so when you were in prison there, could you look at a man and tell whether he was going to live or die, whether he was going to make it out or not? And he said, yeah, I, I could tell who was going to make it out and who wasn't. And the people who weren't were the optimists. He said the optimists were the ones who would say, well, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and, and it would go. And they'd say, well, then we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and it would go. And then it would be Thanksgiving. And then it would be Christmas again. And he said, those people just died of a broken heart. But he said, on the other hand, I knew that things were bad. I knew that there was no telling when I was going to get home, but I knew that I would get home. There was no way they were going to break me. There was no way they were going to defeat me. And he said this, this is an important quote, and I posted on the screen for you. This is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Now, I don't know if Stockdale was a Christian or not. I hope he was. But what he said there sounds an awful lot like the biblical concept of hope. Biblical hope is something different than the way we use the word hope. We use hope to mean something we wish would happen, but we don't have any um, real expectation that it will. You know, I, I hope that my child is not getting into trouble. She's home late. I hope she's not doing anything I wouldn't approve of. I hope the Astros win the World Series this year. We don't think it's going to happen. We're saying, I hope. 
But when the Bible uses the word hope, it doesn't mean that kind of hope. And it doesn't mean positive thinking. If you've ever tried, well, I'll just think positive thoughts and everything will work out okay. It doesn't work that way. Hope in in the biblical sense is a confident expectation that things are going to turn out the way they should, that, that we win in the end, even though right now reality is brutal. Hope is the willingness to look at things as they truly are, to not hope for pie in the sky or to to see things in a different way, but to see things as they truly are and to know, even though you can take everything away from me, you can't take away this fact. My God is in charge and I will win in the end. That's hope. That is Christian hope. And I mention that because right now I know, I know some of you are going through some really brutal facts of life. Some things are going on in your life that are almost unbearable. Maybe they feel absolutely unbearable. And I don't know the half of what people in this room are suffering. In a church this size, I can only know a limited number of people and what they're going through. And I know there are also people in this room that would stand up and say, right now I'm doing well. I'm blessed. I can't complain about a thing. And if that's true, hallelujah. And I hate to rain on your parade, but it won't always be that way. We will face difficult times, no matter who we are. And I wish I could stand up and preach you a message about how to avoid pain entirely, how to live in such a way that nothing bad ever happens. And there are people who preach those messages, and they are lying to you, because that such a life does not exist on this side of heaven. But what I can do is give you the hope that changed the world, the hope that you need to get through whatever life is going to throw at you today, tomorrow, and in the days to come. Jesus, we're studying the last week of Jesus' life before the cross, and we've gotten to that last 24 hours, that last section of time right before he goes to the cross when he knew he only had a few hours left, a few hours left with the, the 12 most important people in his life, the 12 best friends that he had, And he needed to explain to them what was about to happen. They still didn't know about the cross. He'd been telling them they couldn't get it through their heads. He had to help them to see. He also had to give them a hope so that they'd be able to carry on in the meantime because awful things were about to happen, not just to him, but to them. He wasn't concerned about himself. He was concerned about them. They had the task of rebuilding. They had the task of picking up the mantle and carrying on leadership of the most important movement in human history. He had a few hours to get them ready for this. And he did it in an unusual way. He did it through the most famous and most most important holiday in their lives. So let's pick up chapter 14, verses 12 through 26, and we'll we'll see the hope that you need to get through. Verse 12, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Now, it's hard for us as first century people, especially first century Gentile people, especially first century Christians, to completely understand how important Passover was to Jesus and his disciples and to people of their race at that time. It was sort of like, for us, Christmas 
and July the 4th, all mixed together and given even more importance and much more specific ways of observing the holiday because this was a religious holiday. It was the, it was the day they remembered when God did a great miracle and freed their people and, and really made them his people from now on. It was also a national holiday. It was the beginning of the nation of Israel. And there were specific instructions on how to celebrate it. Imagine if you and me, if we celebrated Christmas, Christmas and July 4th on the same day, and we also had to go to Washington, D.C., rent a hotel, and celebrate it there on site. This is what it was like for the, for the Jews. And I'm sure that these 12 disciples, when Jesus brought them to Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week, their idea was they didn't know about the cross. They didn't know any of that. They just thought, oh, well, obviously... Jesus wants to celebrate the Passover with us. That's why he brought us here. And so when the day arrived, their, their quite natural question was, hey, you know, Jesus, every morning this week, we've been waking up here at Lazarus's house and we've been walking down those, that hill two miles and through the Kidron Valley and, and through the gates of Jerusalem. We've been going to the temple and teaching and all that's great, but, but tonight's the night. We got to celebrate Passover, so where are we going to do it? And Jesus says, tell you what, Let's take two of you. Luke tells us it was Peter and John. You two, you two go on into the city, and you'll meet a man who's carrying a jar of water. Now, this was a prearranged signal. Jesus was doing things under cloak of darkness, so to speak. He was, he was being very secretive. Why? Because he knew that people wanted to kill him. He knew that the, his enemies wanted to arrest him, but they couldn't arrest him because he was always surrounded by crowds, crowds who adored him. And so they would have loved an opportunity to arrest Jesus when he was just at a dinner with his 12 best friends. So he said, we got to do this in secret. So go into town, find this guy who's carrying a water jar. Now he'll stand out because in that culture, men didn't carry water. That was considered woman's work. You and I may think that's silly. Today we would, we would say, look for the guy who's carrying a Gucci purse. Look for the guy who's listening to his wife and not checking his phone. See, I thought that was a lot funnier than y'all did. Um, and when you see this guy, he's going to take you to an upper room, and there you'll get ready for the Passover. Mark doesn't tell us what all that entails, but we know it meant that Peter and John had to go to the market, buy a lamb, a spotless lamb, perfect in every way. They had to have it slaughtered. They had to have it roasted. They had to go buy bitter herbs. They had to go buy flour and make unleavened bread. They had to get some wine. They had to get other things uh, for the supper. And this upper room where they met... Christian tradition tells us was the home of John Mark, who wrote the second gospel. It's not said anywhere in Scripture that's the case, but that's what a lot of people presume. So Jesus, we can assume, with the other ten disciples, went and did his usual thing, taught in the temple all day long. And then when the sun started to set, he went to that upper room. Now let's pick up with verse 17. When evening came... Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born." Now, all four Gospels tell us this story. John, which we're not going to read today, gives us a lot more detail. This is the most important meal that has ever been eaten in the history of humanity. This changed everything. And John gives this meal, this one meal, four chapters of his Gospel. 
And it tells us that when Jesus got there, one of the first things he did was take off his outer garment, get down on his hands and knees with a basin of water, and wash their feet. Foot washing was something that just wasn't done. It was a considerate act because everybody's feet were dirty back then. You walked everywhere. The roads were dusty. You wore sandals. But no one would wash someone else's feet. It was considered too denigrating. Even a slave could not be compelled to do it. So for Jesus to do this act was, uh, made a real impression. Imagine you woke up tomorrow, walked out your front door, and saw the President of the United States washing your car by hand. This is the kind of effect this had on these men. Jesus was saying, this is true greatness. This is true love. This is the way I want you to be. I want you to love others so much that you're not worried about pumping up your reputation, but putting others first. And then he tells them, he, he, he begins to share with them what's about to happen. And for the first time, it starts to dawn on them. They start to get the idea, wait, Jesus really is going to die. Wait, he's not going to become this Davidic Messiah who reigns and rules and conquers all our enemies. He's actually going to give his life. And as they're absorbing the shock of that, he, he says, you know what, this is actually a good thing because I'm going away, the, the counselor will come, the helper, the Holy Spirit. He says, it's actually better to have the Holy Spirit than it is to have me because I'm just a man. And so, you know, you and I, we can't be together all the time, but the Holy Spirit will be with you always. And so instead of me being encased in a human body, I will be in your body and your mind and you'll be with me always. And he also warns them, he begins to tell them, listen, things are going to get rough for you. Even after I'm gone, you're going to see kings and councils and, and emperors who hated me. They're going to hate you just like they hated me. And they're going to come for your lives and, and you're going to have to be ready. I'm going to give you the words to say, but stick close to me. And he also said, the one thing, you don't have to worry about them killing you. I got that covered. You don't have to worry about outside pressure. You don't have to worry about anything except this one thing. The, the devil can't stop you. The world can't stop you. Governments can't stop you. But you can stop yourselves if you fight amongst yourselves. And in chapter 17 of John, he begins to pray for them. And he prays, Lord, make them one. Father, make them one like you and I are one. Help them to love each other. And so the world will see they're different. And then he comes to the meal, and he comes to that passage we just read. Now, now imagine for me, just a moment, that next Christmas or next uh, Easter or next, uh, next time you have a family reunion or a wedding, you're all gathered together, and, and the patriarch of the family, whoever that might be, dad or granddad or mom or whoever, stands up and says, by the way, one of you kids tonight is going to murder me. Can you imagine? That's what Jesus does here. They're enjoying this meal together, this festive time where they're remembering what God did for them and their people. Jesus says, one of you tonight is going to kill me. And I know those men in that room are not relatives by blood, and yet they have a bond that's deeper than blood. The 12 of them each left behind their families and their jobs and their hometowns to follow Jesus, and they believe that he's Messiah. And they've suffered in his name. They've suffered poverty, and they've suffered ridicule, and their lives have been endangered. They have a bond that's like the bond of men who've been through battle together. And now to hear that one of them is going to betray Jesus, do this cowardly and awful thing, they just can't believe it. But it gets worse. Jesus goes on and says, no, it's not just that. All of you are going to leave me. All of you are going to run away. Tonight, you're going to abandon me in my moment of deepest need. And you, Peter, the one who's always tried to be the most devoted of all, you're going to twist the knife more than anybody because three times you'll deny that you even know me. And, and then they, they, 
They perform the, the Passover ritual. It, it has been done hundreds of times, thousands of times through the years. Each one of these men have done it where you, you, you pass the cup around and, and everyone takes a drink and then they tell the story. There's a script to it that's in the book of Exodus. Remember, uh, this is not like Thanksgiving or, or, or Christmas where we each have our own family traditions. No, every Jew would have done the Passover the same way. It was scripted in the law of Moses. And although Mark or none of the gospel writers record that, I'm sure Jesus and his disciples went through that with Jesus acting the part of the Father and retelling the story of that night. The, the angel of death came and the blood of the Lamb rescued every Israelite. But Jesus goes further. He, he endows this, this meal with a new significance and changes history at this moment. Verse 22, While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, this is my body. This isn't part of the script. He just does it. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So I need to spend just a moment, I, I don't want to get sidetracked on this, but just a moment on this idea of what Jesus is saying here, because Christian people disagree on what Jesus is saying. There are, there's, there are branches of the Christian faith who look at this and say, well, Jesus was being very literal. He's saying that something mystical happens when we take bread in his name, when we take wine in his name, it suddenly mystically somehow becomes the real body of Jesus, the real blood of Jesus. And I'm not denying those people are our brothers and sisters, they are. And, and, and we'll talk this over in heaven someday and, and we'll laugh it up. But, but for now, I just have to say, that can't be what Jesus meant. And two reasons. Number one, in the Jewish law, the law of Moses, and all of these men were devout Jews. The idea of eating or drinking anything with blood in it was abhorrent. It, it meant you were no longer a Jew. It was, it was the one thing you don't do. For Jesus to have said, by the way, here's a cup of my blood, drink up. They, they would have said, no, Lord, I'm not going to do that. They understood he wasn't being literal. The other thing is, the whole Passover meal was laden with symbolism. This wasn't just a barbecue of a lamb. This was every part of the meal meant something. The lamb was meant to remind them of, of the sacrifice that had rescued their people. The bitter herbs were meant to remind them of their suffering in, the, in their time of slavery. The unleavened bread was supposed to remind them of the idea of sinlessness, that God wanted to remove the sin from their lives like they had removed the yeast from that bread. And so all of these elements meant something, and now Jesus is just giving them a new meaning. Obviously, this is symbolic. And what he's saying, he's taking that bread and he's saying, you've always looked at this bread and you've seen sinlessness and holiness. Now, from now on, when you eat this bread in my name, you think about the fact that this represents my body. You think about the fact that I loved you so much. I'm the only human being in history who actually chose to be born. I chose to take on flesh when I didn't want to take on flesh when I didn't have to. I chose to take on flesh because it was the only way to rescue you. And, and this wine, when you drink it in my name, from now on, you'll think of my blood. You're going to see my blood tomorrow. You're going to see a lot of my blood. And you'll know that blood was shed for your redemption. That blood is a sign of how desperately wicked your heart is. It's also a sign of how incredibly gracious your God is and how much he loves you.
Remember that every time. And so from then on, that was the sign that marked God's people. Two things have always marked God's people since that time. When, when someone comes to know the Lord, they get baptized in water and they take the Lord's Supper. And some, some churches do it every week and some churches do it once a month and churches like ours do it once a quarter. We're not going to do it today. Today's not our day, but we're going to have the Lord's Supper on Good Friday in just a few weeks. So don't miss that. But also don't miss what Jesus said in verse 25. In verse 25, in the midst of saying all of this and talking about this is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, he says, I will not drink this fruit of the vine again until the day I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. The day I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. What is he saying there? Right in the midst of this awful time, I mean, this, is, this moment is kicking off the 12 worst hours of their lives, of every person in that room, including Jesus. And he's saying, even now, in the darkest, darkest moment, when the devil seems to have won, there's this note of hope, this, this light in the darkness, this song in the night. We're going to win. Now, what is he saying? What is the message of verse 25, this cup that he'll drink anew? Two things. Number one, this life is not all there is. That's good news. Here's Jesus saying, I'm about to die. I'm going to die tonight. And someday I'm going to drink wine again. Now, how can that be? Those two statements don't match up unless there's something after this life. And by the way, you might say, well, everybody knows there's an afterlife. That was not a, a settled question for the Jews in that time. You may know this, you may not. There were two different ruling parties in, or two different competing parties within Judaism. There were Pharisees and Sadducees, and Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. They said that, you know, once you're dead, you're just dead, and that's why they were sad, you see. I didn't make that up. So this was not a settled question. Jesus was settling it. He says, I'm about to die, and I'm going to live again. Isn't it good news? This life is not all there is. By the way, if I can slip into a little tangent for a moment, one of the biggest problems we have as Christians is we live like this life is all there is. Like we've got to get our fun now. We've got to get our pleasure now. We've, we've got to get it all now. We've got to suck the marrow out of life now because there's nothing after this. Even worse than that, I mean, when you're under, let's say, 35, you're like, man, I've got to have fun now because I sure won't when I'm old. Golly, the pressure and the awful decisions we make thinking, oh, it's going to be too late someday when there's something after this. And here's the best part. The second thing Jesus was saying is we have a celebration ahead of us. Not only is there another life, knowing there's another life is not really good news because what if that next life is just like this one? What if we just get reincarnated back into the same mess? Or what if it's even worse? What's good news is knowing that the next life is something wonderful. It's having some details, having some information. And the reason I say we have a celebration ahead of us, where I get that in verse 25, is this, and a lot of people don't realize, the Jews didn't drink wine all the time. Wine was something for a special occasion. Wine was what you brought out when you wanted to celebrate. Especially working class people like Jesus and his disciples, this was a few times a year that you brought out a bottle of wine, that you brought out a vat of wine and you shared amongst your friends. This was, this was a celebration. And by the way, let me just address something real quick. 
First century Jews had a very different relationship to alcohol than 21st century Americans. We look on alcohol and we say, well, I I think everybody I know knows somebody or they themselves have some great story about how they got wasted some night and, oh, it was so fun and I really don't remember, but... And we tell stories about that and we laugh about it and it's, it's, that to us is a good time. Whereas the Jews would look at that and say, wait a second, you, you got to where you had no inhibitions and you weren't yourself and you did foolish and silly things and you're celebrating that? Drunkenness in Scripture is always, always condemned. Nobody in Scripture ever got drunk and said, well, I'm glad I did that. So the Jews had this very different relationship to alcohol. They had, they had wine, but wine was for celebration. It wasn't for, uh, it, it wasn't for losing yourself and becoming someone different and doing things you later regret. So what Jesus is saying when, when he says, I'm going to drink of the fruit of the vine when I get to my Father's kingdom, he's saying, my Father is going to open up his storehouse and he's going to give us the best of everything he has. In fact, and here's good news, okay? Because, and the reason I'm going to tell you good news is the, that a lot of Christians, very, very devout Christians, worry about what heaven's going to be like. I heard about a minister once who was asked, what do you think happens after we die? And he said, and I quote, well, I suppose we will all go on to eternal bliss, but I wish you wouldn't ask me such depressing questions. And I think that's how a lot of us feel. A lot of us feel like, well, you know, I guess heaven's going to be better than hell. It's better than the alternative, but, uh, you know, I don't really think it's going to be all that much fun. I really don't want to think about it all that much. I'd rather just concentrate on the here and now. Why? Well, I think, number one, we've bought into the comic book version of heaven with halos and harps and flitting around on clouds. And secondly, can we be honest? A lot of the supposedly holy people we know aren't really that happy. They just don't strike us as joyful people. I got a secret for you. They're not actually holy because holiness implies joy, but that's, that's a subject for another time. And so we got this idea in our minds that it's going to be a place where, yeah, we, you know, it'd be better than roasting for all eternity. But then again, I, I don't expect to laugh all that much, you know, just sort of sit around and listen to sermons, I guess, for all eternity. When actually, <laughs> thank you for the laughter, when actually Jesus, whenever he talks about heaven, every single time, you look it up, every single time he compares it to a feast. Perfect example, story of the prodigal son. Man goes away from his family, disgraces his people, loses everything, becomes miserable, makes horrible choices, and then staggers back home And the father runs to meet him, grabs him by the nose, drags him back home, and puts him down and says, now you sit here and think about what you've done, right? That's how the story goes, right? No, it doesn't. It says the father kisses him, brings him home, gives him the best thing he has, his ring, his robe, his sandals, and he says, let's kill the fatted calf. Now you and me eat beef all the time. It's nothing special. But the fatted calf, to a first century, even a a well-off man, that was what you saved, And so the people hearing the story of the prodigal son would have heard that and said, man, he wasted the fatted calf on that? And the the whole point of the story is the father is saying, no, it's not a waste. This is what I want to do. I want to give the best of what I have to my children. And I can't wait until they're freed from the world of sin and death so they can enjoy the best 
of what I have. In, in, in other stories, when Jesus is talking about heaven, he describes it as being like a wedding feast. And I know we've got all kinds of goofy, weird, messed up stuff related to weddings, and that's a sermon for another time, a rant for another time. If you're thinking about getting married, let me sit you down and talk to you for a while about what your wedding should be. But this past week, I got to officiate the wedding of my nephew and all of Carrie's family was there, and, and it was just this fantastic time. We had, we had fajitas at the reception. That's a Texas rece- reception, right? I mean, they had, they had like nine different kinds of cake. I, I tried most of them. It was, it was a fantastic time. I gained two pounds in 24 hours. It was, it was worth every calorie. It was wonderful. We laughed. We jumped. We danced. Yes, we danced. Don't fire me. It was a good time. And that's what Jesus says heaven's going to be like, a place of celebration, a place of joy. So so here's here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine for just a moment. I mean, use your imagination. I want you to imagine that you wake up one day and the most awful facts of your present reality have been totally reversed. Imagine you wake up and suddenly you turn on the news and you find out that Financial markets are at a peak such that every nation on earth has plenty. There are no more hungry people, no more poor people. All wars have ceased. Everybody's made peace. Imagine that you you get up and you go into your kitchen and the people you love most who you've lost, whoever they might be, are sitting there waiting to have breakfast with you. And your physical ailments are no more. Maybe your your, your difficulties breathing are, are gone. You can breathe freely. You can walk, jump, dance. Your mind is clear. Your eyes, your ears. You're in a perfect, imperishable body. Everything right now that makes life hard has been completely reversed. And and to know that that is permanent, that's what's going to happen. It's like the wealthiest man on earth has sent you an engraved invitation that says, come into my home and everything that's mine is yours. And all I want to do is sit back and enjoy watching you enjoy my stuff. Imagine a world where whatever you love to do the most, whatever you're the best at, you do it all day, every day. You do it with joy in your heart. You do it with excitement. And you do it under the watchful eye of a father who is absolutely obsessed with you. Imagine a world where you're constantly learning new things. And the more you learn, the happier you become. There's new worlds to explore and there's new people to meet and you never get tired of it and it never ends. And here's what the Bible says about that. The Bible actually says, contrary to what we think, that we ought to think about that all the time. You know, when I was a kid, daydreaming was a bad thing because it distracted me from my work. But I want to tell you the most productive thing you can do with your mind is to daydream about heaven. The most productive thing you can do is to think about the world to come. Colossians 3 actually says, set your mind on things above, where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And contrary to what you would think, daydreaming about the life to come actually makes you live a better life in this life. Because rather than being so foolish as to say, I've got to get my fun now, I've got to get, I've got to get my 
possessions now. I've got to build my earthly empire. I've got to marry Mr. Right. I've got, to, I've got to get that perfect job. I've got to get that perfect house. I've got to make everybody like me. I've got to gain all this money and fame and adoration and success. Rather than being caught up in that rat race, you say, I'm going to live in such a way that the things I do now matter for all eternity. And they don't dry up and blow away when I die or when Jesus comes back. See, that's, that's the hope that's the hope that we're supposed to have, the hope that, that changes the way we live. That's the hope that enabled 11 men in a room to experience the worst 12 hours anybody's ever experienced, and yet to come back, pick up the mantle, and turn the world upside down. And to say to emperors who are ready to throw them to the lions or light them on fire or crucify them upside down to say, do whatever you want. This is just my earthly body. I've got something better. To martyr themselves with joy and to literally change the world. And if that can happen with that much hope in that few people, imagine what could happen if a few hundred of us, just the people in this room, walked out of this place and said, I'm going to live today like there is something better coming. I'm going to live today like I want to change eternity for good. Can you imagine what would happen just to Montgomery County? Not to mention the rest of the world. So that's why in your At First Guide, the the prayer emphasis that I'm urging you to, to take this week is ask God to give us an eternal perspective, to look beyond the things of this earth, so that when the things of this world do slip away, when we are disappointed, we don't wring our hands or tear out our hair, we just say, okay, that's disappointing, but I know something that's not going to be disappointing, something the world can't take away from me. We don't get caught up in that stuff. An eternal perspective. There's a hymn I want to share with you. This is one verse of a hymn. I've I've shared it with you a few weeks ago, um, but not this verse. This is my favorite verse of this hymn, by the way. I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed, His child and forever I am. And what makes that so beautiful to me is that it was written by a blind woman. Fanny Crosby, I know I've shared this with you recently, but um, blinded at the age of two, went on to write more hymns than anybody in human history. Anybody? And almost all of her hymns have some reference to sight. And here she is saying, I've got a God who lovingly guards my footsteps. I've I've got someone who's got his arm wrapped around me to keep me from stumbling. And I know that I'm going to see him in his beauty. I know I'm going to see him. Here's a woman who never publicly felt sorry for herself, who never said, man, I wish I could see. Because her attitude was, I'm not missing anything in this world. When I'm finally able to see, that's when I'll be able to see the stuff that really matters the stuff that lasts forever, the stuff that will put this world to shame. She lived with that kind of hope. Now, let me just say, and then we're done, that would have been simply the unrealistic dream of an overly pious woman. No different than those soldiers in that prison in Vietnam 50 years ago who said, we're going to get out by Christmas. Just positive thinking that would never come true. If... If her mentality was, I know I'm going to see again because I'm a really good person and good things happen to good people. Because I'm a good Christian and I go to church and I write hymns to the Lord and he owes me. 
because I've suffered without complaining with this blindness. Well, he owes me my sight in the next life. If that was her mentality, then it's false hope. It's not going to happen. But because her mentality was, I know I shall see the king in his beauty. I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight. Why? Because I'm redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Because Jesus went all the way for me. Because he paid the full price at high cost to himself. I know there's nothing he won't give me. And I know the celebration that's coming is far better than anything I could hope for. Is he your Lord? Are you under his blood? Are you redeemed by his blood? Because once you're his child, his child and forever you will be.